0: In today's episode, we discuss exegesis. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at Edenhollow.com. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Marshall Reed is a friend of mine. We go back quite a few years just in working with camps and other things that we've done together. We actually currently worship together in the Birmingham area, and he has been a great asset to the congregation where I get to, to serve and labor. He preached the gospel for 15 years and recently transitioned into full-time real estate, Uh, but he is an excellent student of the Bible and somebody who truly loves digging deeply into God's Word. He is married to Lisa. They've been married for 29 years, and he has three children. He is a great father and a great man of God, and I think you'll appreciate the things he has to share with us today about exegesis. Let's jump right in. We're going to be talking about exegesis, and that is one of those words that is not used in everyday language. So let's go ahead and start with
1: a definition. How do you define exegesis? So I'm not a Greek scholar, but uh, it does come from the Greek, and I think everybody would recognize the prefix of that word ex. Uh, We see it in, for instance, our word exit or exodus has to do with coming out to to lead out to get something out of something else um and so exegesis as it applies to uh writings not just scripture but any writing is the uh, is a explanation of or interpretation of a text and so you're trying to get everything you can out of that text that is contrasted with another word that's similar, also has a Greek background to it called eisegesis, E I S E G E S I S, I believe is how it's spelled. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis. That's where you read into the text an interpretation or presuppositions things of that nature what's not actually there you're putting stuff in and so i believe it's helpful that we talk actually about both of those and distinguish that because what we're going to be talking about is the issues that come with exegesis or how to do exegesis well and in order to talk about that you got to talk about eisegesis what we want to know when we read scripture is we want to know what the author's intent was we want to know what the author's meaning was we want to know what their point was that they were trying to make. And it is absolutely true, though, that every single person that is reading a text of any kind, especially when it comes to Scripture, is going to come to that text with some kind of background. Some It may be very minimal. They may not have much religious background, but they have heard things in their life. They've had people talk to them. Those who have been very religious for a long time, they're going to have studied this passage before. They're going to have heard sermons preached about it. They're going to have had it brought up in Bible classes. All of those things are going to influence what somebody thinks about a passage or thinks what it means. And so it's difficult to leave out our presuppositions or previous understandings or what we've heard about a passage and what it means. But it is critical to do so because it's the author that's talking not us. The author had a sp- very specific point that he was making. And so it is. it behooves us and it is our job to find out what that is. Mankind always changes their views. And like you said, society changes. Well, what standard are they using? They're using man's standard. And everybody has different opinions about what is right and wrong when you are only talking about human wisdom and human morals and what is acceptable in a society, we're talking about a document or a collection of documents that comes from a higher power, from a higher place, something that that is not human wisdom, but rather heavenly wisdom. It comes from the ultimate being. And he is the only one that has the right as the creator, as the almighty, to be able to say what he means and what he wants and whether it's for all time or not. And so it's a completely different standard. Hebrews 4 about being living and breathing and, and so forth, I would say certainly does not mean that it can be changed at mankind's whim and as culture changes. But rather, it is something that is not a dead document. It is still applicable. It is still working in us. It is still uh, exactly what we need. It's still a valid um, valid set of, of laws and, uh, concepts and, and principles that he expects us to live by. So when you compare man's wisdom and what man thinks is right, that's always going to fluctuate. God though, never changes. And what he said at the beginning is still true today. Okay.
0: So I like that answer. Uh, it, it's, it is interesting to me how often, We try to step in and make ourselves the standard, but like you said, that's the most untrustworthy standard you can have. And when you have passages like Jeremiah 17, which talk about the heart is more deceitful than all else, and you know, you've got this, you know, all these passages that mention the fact that we are not a reliable source, then why would we think that our interpretation is reliable? We need to just get back, as you said, to what the author said. What is our process for
1: exegesis? The number one thing to keep in mind, in my opinion, when reading a passage of Scripture is context, context, context. You have to read it in light of the greater context. And, And there are multiple contexts to keep in mind as you're reading Scripture. Starting with the smallest would be the, uh, either the verse or, or at the very least the paragraph that that particular verse or phrase or whatever is contained within, and then go from there, you would have maybe a larger section within that, uh, chapter. It may not even be the full chapter, but a, a larger section or a larger point that the author is making. And then you've got the context of the overall letter or book that it's found within. And uh, yeah, I mean, you could even make the argument that you got the context of the Bible as a whole. And uh, not just the context of the writing itself, but it really helps to know the culture and uh, what was going on in that particular day, that particular society, that particular person or people that the author was writing to. Uh, that's all part of the context as well. And, and something else that's great about this is we, we live in a world where none of us have any shortage of resources available to us to help us in this. And I'm, I'm talking about the available commentaries and books and articles and so forth. True, you've got to be discriminatory in what you're reading. Not everything that you're going to read is worthwhile, but there are so many well-renowned scholars who have spent their life learning and dissecting and uh, applying their knowledge to writing commentaries, that the average Christian can read and come away with some great nuggets of information that helps them understand better the context and, and, and what the point of the author is. That's not saying it's absolutely necessary in every single occasion, or even maybe even most of the occasions that we're studying, but that's just another component, I think, to help with our exegesis, why not rely on all these resources we have available? Because frankly, I'm not smart enough to figure it all out on my own. I, I can read something over and over and over again, and I can pay attention to contextual clues, and, and I can read nothing but the Bible. And I can figure out you know, what I need, but to really make it come alive and to understand the depth that's there and, and grab every bit of meaning that I can, I don't have every bit of that knowledge. And so not relying on other people to contribute to that is foolhardy, in my opinion.
0: So context is key. Uh, we, we've established that. And then use what resources we, you have around you. The goal of exegesis is understanding. Uh, and I think that's, that's what we have to get back to. I'll also say that another thing that I always caution people with is never accept something because it's what you already believe. Right. And, and you've got to be careful about that because that's what leads to eisegesis of, well, I'm going to find something that, that teaches what I already think is, is right, and then we're good to go. Um, that, exactly. that can also be dangerous.
1: You know, for those of us who grew up with in a religious family and our parents took us to Bible classes and church services all our life, and we have continued in that even into our adulthood, it's really hard. To read a passage with fresh eyes and to leave out what you already believe. But I believe it's an extremely worthwhile exercise to question. And a lot of people get scared at this and they don't want to say this, but I believe it is crucial for every Christian in their faith. They need to question everything they've been taught. Now, that doesn't mean that what they've been taught is wrong but they need to come to understand it as the truth because it's the truth and not because of what somebody else said, whether it be their parents, their preacher, Bible class teachers, whatever. And so the same thing is true with actually reading the passage and saying, oh yeah, I know what this is talking about. I know what it means. Well, do you really, you know, take, take a fresh look at it and look at it with critical eyes and with that context in mind, and read other sources. And I can almost guarantee that there will be a lot of times that you will see stuff you've never seen, or you will reverse what you think a passage means based upon that extra study, based upon those extra critical eyes and uh, realize, oh, I had it wrong all along. And there are a few of those passages that I plan on bringing up yeah, uh, in this podcast.
0: Well, and that again, I, I think what people need to realize is the value of doing that isn't that it will change what you believe. It's that it will either change what you believe, it'll bolster that you believe the right thing, or it mm-hmm. will just add to what you believe. Yes, I understood exactly. the basics of this, but I didn't know this, this, and this detail, and that is you right. know it it'll bring a new fascination to an old text. And I think sometimes we miss that because we're so scared of learning something that will oppose what we've already believed. Yes. So let's give absolutely. So let's give some examples. You said you have some of these passages in mind. Let's uh, let's let's talk yeah. about some examples where we need to do better exegesis and less eisegesis.
1: So I'll start with one that I believe probably every one of your listeners is going to agree with, and they're going to instantly in their minds be pointing their fingers at the world in general and say, "See, yes, this is exactly what y'all are guilty of." And that is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Um, any longtime Christian who has uh, takes a critical um, view of, of this point will realize that this passage has been misused and abused by nonbelievers usually. Uh, and this passage, this is Jesus speaking. He says, judge not that you be not judged. And so we've probably all heard somebody in our life say, um, in re- usually it's in response to somebody saying, Jesus said to don't judge, you know, don't judge me. You don't have the right to judge me. And they will quote this. They may not know any other passage in scripture, but they know this one. Well, this is a very obvious example of eisegesis or maybe not so much eisegesis as it just is. You're not paying attention to the context. Yeah. And you're you're not continuing to read because that's just the first sentence. And uh, if you continue reading, he goes on to say, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he uses the illustration about if you've got something in your eye and you're trying to take out something that's in somebody else's eye, how can you do that? You can't even see yourself. So how can you take something else out of somebody else's eye. So the point is not don't judge. It's be careful with your judgment and take a look at yourself first. Another one would be Matthew 27, 46. And this isn't the only verse that contains this, but we'll just use Matthew's account. But in Matthew 27 and 46, Jesus is on the cross and It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there are many Christians, and myself included, in my early days that believe that that basically Jesus was indeed forsaken by God. and And part of this goes, or part of the reasoning for this interpretation is that, you know, Jesus took on the sins of the world and God cannot condone sin. He can't even look upon sin. Yes, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. So you have Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? And then we know that God can't look upon evil. And so he has taken the sins of the world upon him. And so there's even a popular hymn that we sometimes sing that, in the, I think it's the first verse, says, The Father turned his face away. Well, is that the correct understanding of what Jesus is saying here when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of good exegesis is when you see somebody in the New Testament quote something from the Old Testament, then go back to that Old Testament passage and read it in its entirety. Don't just read the one verse, read the context. See where the greater context is. And so with this particular passage that Jesus is quoting, it comes from Psalm 22, which is one of the most messianic psalms there is. And so many references in this uh, psalm. It's only 31 verses long. And so many things as you read through that psalm that you say, yep, that happened to Jesus. Yep, that happened to Jesus. Yep, that happened to Jesus. Well, it starts off, that's the first words of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, We don't have time in this podcast to read through the entire psalm. But I encourage the listeners to do that and to consider a different or an alternative interpretation of what Jesus is saying here and why he quotes from Psalm 22. And that is this, that if when you read through the Psalm, you see David starting out by expressing the fact that it feels like, yes, God, you have forsaken me, and I am going through this turmoil, this struggle, this persecution. Everybody is against me. But yet, midway through the psalm, he completely changes direction with that. And he says in, uh, in verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. And he's, he's calling out to God to help him. And then he goes on to say that he indeed did not forsake him. He is, and this is what kind of wrinkles my skin when that song is is sung or led that uh, states, "For the Father turned His face away," um, verse twenty-four. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. And there's much more that could be said about this particular psalm, and uh the applications to Jesus but the the point is the overall point that David is making here that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of is that while it ap- appeared at the beginning that God had forsaken Jesus on the cross or forsaken David originally and while it certainly appeared that way to the world the truth was very very different God never did forsake David he never did forsake his son Jesus on the cross he was there and he was offering that help and So when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 in verse 1, I believe that what he's doing is he's trying to call people's minds to the entire psalm, not just that first verse, but to point out, I am the fulfillment of this Psalm of David. And when you read through that, you can see that that's exactly the case because, again, so many uh, shadows and images there in that psalm did... Uh, or was fulfilled in Jesus, and even the very last verse of that Psalm, uh, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Almost the exact same wording as what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished, it is done. Marshall and I had the
0: opportunity to dig into several other examples where exegesis has gone wrong, but unfortunately, because of the time of these episodes, I could not include them. The goal of our Bible study is understanding, and exegesis is definitely the best way to do that. Dig into that context. Make sure that what we are understanding is what the text actually says and not what we want it to say. It is so easy to be dishonest with ourselves and with the Word of God, and we have to take extra measures in order to make sure we are doing our study the right way. I hope this episode has been helpful to you, challenged you in some way. Maybe it will give you some tools you need in order to study the Bible better yourself. If it has been helpful, share it with others and let us know what we can do to serve you better. You can find us at preachimpediments.com and you can find past episodes of our podcast where we've discussed other words and trying to make them simple to understand even though they are sometimes complicated words. Until next time,